0: Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Benia. On this episode, I'm speaking with Kaya Shaheen. Kaya is an associate professor in the Department of History at Indiana University in Bloomington. He is an expert on early modern Ottoman Empire with an interest in history writing, governance, religious identities, ceremonies, and rituals. Um, He is the author of numerous books including the most recent, Peerless Among Princes, The Life and Times of Sultan Suleiman, And that's what we talk about in this conversation. Uh, we start by giving an overview of the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire was uh, for many centuries. And um, we talk about how Suleiman was a critical leader at a critical point uh, in the Ottoman Empire. We talk about uh, his upbringing and how it was instrumental and how he was a leader and sort of his temperament. We talk about how succession worked for Suleiman, how he gained power, and how he continued the spread of the empire early in his reign. We talk about the Grand Vizier and the importance of this role, major conflicts with Hungarians and Habsburgs of the time, uh, various executions and some of the reasons why he he you know, authorized them. And we talk about his reign overall, how it ended, and his ongoing legacy. Um, as many people in the podcast will know, I'm quite fond of history uh, i really enjoy it especially history that i don't know a whole lot about or didn't learn about um and trying to find interesting things uh, about it obviously the ottoman empire is uh, tremendous it's huge uh, there's obviously uh, good moments bad moments um, but it's important to understand in terms of global and world history and i came across this book um And it was, it intrigued me because he was such an important figure for such an important empire, for such an important part of our anthropology and our history. And uh, it's really nice trying to kind of spotlight certain uh, people from various times and various places that we don't always hear about. And uh, this was a great book. I enjoyed reading it, It it's very, very informative. And uh, Kaya was uh, absolutely wonderful, very, very lovely, brilliant, um, wonderful to talk to. Just a great conversation. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and uh i was i was so so happy he was uh, able to to come on um as always uh, you can find this conversation all of the conversations over at my free substack converging dialogues give me a subscribe and follow and share with all your friends and people that you might uh, think this uh, podcast would be interesting for also on youtube uh, as well converging dialogues same thing there subscribe share and um i hope you enjoy this episode So now I bring you Kaya Shaheen. I am here with Kaya Shaheen. Kaya, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast. I'm uh, very much looking forward to uh, talking with you.
1: Thank you so much for your invitations.
0: Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, So I I have this uh, uh, newfound, I guess, uh, love for all things world history and different periods and different right. empires and, and Turkey definitely has a very rich yeah. uh, history, a very long history. Uh, I wish I had this, this kind of uh, interest when I was in undergrad, taking all of my world history courses and stuff. I was like, let me just get this over with. So it's nice that I'm older now and I can digest this stuff. And you've written a fabulous book, which is called Thank the you. life and times of Sultan Suleiman, peerless among princes. Uh, it's super fascinating. So before we get into it, uh, why don't you tell listeners uh, who you are, what your background's in, what you do, and uh, what you uh, currently think and write about.
1: Sure. So uh, my name is Kaya Shahin. I am a professor of history at Indiana University, Bloomington. Uh, I'm in the history department, uh, but... I stopped being a scholar all the, although temporarily recently when I accepted the job as executive associate dean. So I work in the Hamilton Lugar School of Global and International Studies currently, which is also part of Indiana University. And it's interesting that you would talk about, uh, you know, world history. We kind of are trying to give a sort of, you know, more global, well anchored, but kind of more global education to our students, uh, so I am a historian of the Ottoman Empire. Uh I went through the you know the usual training, the languages, the history, a PhD program. Uh but I am also very much interested in the connections of the Ottomans with the wider world. You know, mm-hmm. what was the function, what was the place of the Ottoman Empire within a global environment in which we had these different empires expanding the global commerce, expanding The exchange of ideas, goods, as well as germs, were expanding. So, I'm kind of looking at that critical period through an Ottoman lens, but remaining mindful of uh, other other similar empires, or you know, remaining mindful of political formations beyond the Ottomans. Basically,
0: Mm -hmm. yeah, no, I think it's I think it's absolutely essential. Uh, History has so many things to teach us, and uh, so many things to understand accurately. And of course, if there's you know, big empires. Um, and there's uh, all these big civilizations it's important to know what they were up to and what they got right and what they got wrong and you know yeah. just there's a human thread here throughout all of it for exactly. our, our anthropology so it's important so so I guess let's let's start with this just for for listeners that may not know or whatever before we we get kind of dumped into uh Sultan uh, Suleiman's kind of time frame, uh, just kind of give us the like two minute, snapshot overview of the Ottoman Empire, when it starts, when it ends, and why you decided to write about him and this particular aspect of the Ottoman Empire?
1: This is a wonderful question. So the Ottoman Empire starts around 1300. Uh, Basically, I mean, at the beginning, what we see is a small, small group of raiders coming from a nomadic background and they know how to ride horses and how to use weapons. And they basically create a, I mean, they are raiders and they are soldiers of fortune, but also in time they establish a sort of political movement and they eventually start creating these different structures of power. So what we see is a sort of procession from a small group of raiders and soldiers of fortune into a small principality, and then into a kind of regional kingdom, and into a sort of global empire uh, by the final decades of the 16th century. The Ottoman Empire, of course, goes much beyond the late 16th century. The official end of the empire is 1922, when the National Assembly uh, in, in Ankara basically abolishes the Sultanate. That's the end of the Ottoman Empire. The the, the last sultan uh, of the Ottoman dynasty, Mehmed Vahideddin the Sixth, leaves uh, Istanbul, and so this is the uh, official end of the of the Ottoman Empire. So, uh, the Ottomans become a major global empire by the end of the sixteenth century. Uh, and then they remain a major sort of political and economic player uh, in European uh, Mediterranean, Middle eastern Eurasian affairs uh, pretty much you know to the end of the empire. Uh, as I am sure you know, for instance, they are one of the participants in World War one so all the way into that you know major global conflict, they continue playing this uh, these these different uh roles in in regional as well as global history
0: yeah so I think it's important to note i mean where where turkey is is uh is on the globe is pretty central at yeah. different parts in global history, especially when you think about uh, a place like you know formerly known as Constantinople, which we now know yeah. is Istanbul is a big you know port city trade, so many things um a lot of cultural things but how how did how did this empire maintain for 600 plus years is a long time yeah. it's a, into the modern era i mean that's a long time yeah
1: it is a long time and i was thinking about other empires as well uh you were asking your question the the austrian habsburgs in central and eastern europe Uh, If we say that, you know, they are established in the area in the 1520s or 1530s, they also survive for a very, very long time in an environment in which we have multiple ethnicities, religions, languages, different modes of production, different geographical conditions, and this and that. But I think at the end of the day, this is what an empire does. I mean, an empire is a structure of power, obviously, when we think of it. But it is also a a form of pragmatism. I mean, and I don't want to cheapen it, but I want to say something like a principled pragmatism. So in my mind, an empire is always a mixture of, you know, the exercise of power and the exercise of pragmatism. I mean, at times, you have a very powerful political center, you know, that collects taxes and, you know, commends armies And then at other times, you have a sort of decentralization whereby, you know, uh, important and powerful figures in the countryside, in the provinces become kind of more powerful. And then there's a period in which, you know, you you start seeing a sort of recentralization whereby the periphery loses power. These kinds of, this sort of ebb and flow is constantly observed uh, throughout Ottoman history, as well as throughout the histories of the other empires. I think, I mean, an empire is basically a structure of power, obviously. It's also a sort of like structure, political and cultural structure for the incorporation and management of diversity. Unlike the nation state, an empire basically allows the existence and coexistence of diversity Mm -hmm. and usually kind of prevents diversity from becoming a source for any kind of contention or any kind of violence. So an empire is much better positioned through its pragmatism, uh, you know, towards the management of diversity. So in that regard, it is very much different than the national state. And I think that that sort of pragmatism uh, is core to the survival of these kinds of large land-based empires. The Byzantine Empire is another example. The Byzantine Empire goes, you know, from whatever, 333, 40, 50 to 1453, Mm -hmm. right? Eleven hundred years, yeah and again, I mean it is it is a very similar geography, like the Ottomans, you know mm-hmm. parts of the middle East Anatolia, the Balkans, uh you know the eastern Mediterranean naval presence in the eastern Mediterranean, so the Byzantines basically follow a a similar model there is i mean obviously there are moments when you know the imperial center tries to impose. Like in the Byzantine case, uh, they try to op- impose their own version of Christianity. In the Ottoman case, you know, uh, there's a certain time in Ottoman history whereby you know the Ottoman uh, political center wants to impose Sunni Islam onto the non-Sunni Muslims. But in general, basically, uh, an empire is a mechanism for managing difference, and they are fairly successful at that. More successful than national states, I would say.
0: Yeah, and that's a very, very nice way in which you describe it. So, so tell us about, so obviously there's a deep, long, rich history here. So you, you, your, your book is about Suleiman, right? He, he's, he's the main, he's the main actor here. He's the main figure here. Give us, we'll get into all the details of things, but guess, give us the, the abstract, right? Give us, give us the, the thumbnail version of what made him such an important figure for the Ottoman Empire and where he stands, in, I guess, in global history as we understand it. So you can talk about just briefly just an overview of things he did or, or the big, big pieces that kind of give him his you know, yeah. claim to fame, if you will.
1: So first of all, I would say that Suleiman is a very lucky person in the sense that his father wages a fairly difficult succession struggle and he survives against all odds thus making it possible for himself as well as for his son Suleiman to succeed to the Ottoman throne but Suleiman is also lucky in the sense that you know he is healthy enough and again fortunate enough to remain on the throne for uh, 46 years i think that longevity is important because obviously it gives it gave him a lot of opportunity for creating his legacy, for documenting his reign. If he had died younger, or if he didn't have these kinds of opportunities, financial, but as well as, you know, having a long life uh, for leaving behind an image, I don't think we will be talking about him to this extent. But he also has, you know, a number of uh, assets and a number of achievements. Among them, I mean, obviously, you know, He's someone with a very thorough education. He receives this, you know, uh, classical or uh, renaissance, whatever you call it, style of education, which is languages, rhetorical sciences, history, poetry, but also physical exercise, you know, hunting, using weapons, and stuff like that. So he's a well-educated person, and, you know, he's very much interested in literature, history. He's a very accomplished poet, so this is another way uh for him to kind of leave leave behind a name uh as an accomplished, you know, person of literature. Mm-hmm. Uh he also lives at a time, I would say, in and you know, talking about the impact of the environment uh on individual lives, and this is obviously something that he cannot control. He lives in an environment in which uh structural issues like Declining temperatures, or droughts, or increasing population pressures—these kinds of things—at uh, least in the first uh, several decades of his reign, he, he so in, he, he basically, you know, reigns uh, at a time when the natural environment and the demography of the empire and this and that is kind of, you know, conducive to a fairly smooth management of uh, natural resources and the empire's resources. So again, in that regard. You know, you can call him very fortunate. I'm emphasizing these things in order to kind of to not to focus too much on his, you know, personal achievements and stuff like that, because in a biography, the balance, I mean, a biography is, it should be a balancing game. You know, I mean, we can overemphasize the context, but we can also overemphasize the individual. And I kind of want to make sure that we don't, we don't overemphasize the individual. So those are the structural things, but the individual also has a couple of qualities. Uh, First of all he's someone with a vision and mm. actually he's someone with different kinds of vision. Uh, he is very much aware that like he's in a position from which he can argue for specific notions of uh sovereignty, rulership. Mm. Uh he in his communiques and in his you know uh view of himself justice he emphasizes justice very much for a time in his youth. He emphasizes a sort of you know, universal leadership, almost a messianic leadership, uh, and he claims to be able to bring East and West Islam and Christianity together. Towards the middle of his life, he repositions himself as the leader of the Sunni Muslim community. And again, I mean, he basically emerges as a major institution builder, legislation, but also charitable works, infrastructure works. So he is someone with who is able to kind of place himself in the midst of these large narratives and define and redefine himself accordingly, and also successfully convey that message to the members of the elite, but also to, you know, uh, members of the Ottoman population at large. He's very big on ceremonialism, on performances, parades, celebrations, these kinds of things. So he's able to convey these different visions, these different images, to large numbers of people. So in that regard, I mean, I would say that he's, he's, he's a very talented person, a kind of thinker and promoter, which we, you, we do not see necessarily in all of these uh, royal figures throughout history.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think that there's a, it seems in reading, in reading the book is, is that there was a uh, concentrated effort to be very invested in establishing or, or building off of uh, tradition and to have things yeah. last after him as to promote the growth of the empire and yeah. understanding and having a careful consideration of how symbols and visuals and tradition exactly. and, 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 um, you know, kind of the, the, you know, the arts and, and, and documenting things, all of that has uh, value uh, for, yeah. for, for extending yeah. Yeah. the, the memory of them. <clears throat>
1: yeah. Yeah. I mean, while writing the biography, uh the notion of time, I mean, obviously, you know, time as we express it in our everyday lives, but also the passage of time as a human being, these kinds of things really uh you know preoccupied me much more than they used to. Uh, this is something I said somewhere else now now as, as I myself became middle-aged. Uh, I was able, I think, to better connect. To the mind of of the middle-aged Suleiman, Mm. as you see him, you know, Mm. reviewing his life in his mind, kind of trying to leave behind a legacy, reflecting on time, on the meaning of time, reflecting on his past achievements, reflecting on history, that sort of thing. Again, I mean, I tried not to psychologize him too much, and I tried not to... Because simply, you know, we don't have those kinds of uh, documents in our hands. And, you know, I wanted to kind of keep the distinction of history from literature uh, Mm -hmm. as much as it is possible as a a, a professional historian. But at the same time, you know, uh, there were also moments in which, you know, I felt close to him as a human being, you know, Mm -hmm. reflecting on time. Mm. on the passage of time, on the meaning of time, on how one spends their time, you know, f- wasting time, you know, f- making good use of time, that sort of stuff. I mean that's that's again something that comes very powerfully uh through the you know documents and testimonies of his reign and from, from his actions as well. So he was very self-conscious mm. uh in that regard as well, you know, mm. about Where his
0: life came from, where it was going—that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. I think there's there's something to that. That is very very important. So he's uh, he's he grows born, grown up, grows up in uh, Trabzon, which is in uh, if if I remember correctly, it's on the border of modern day Syria and Turkey, right? Uh, No,
1: the other way. uh, The other side. Excuse me. It's it's on the uh, south. It's on the southeast uh, coast of the Black Sea, so it's close to the border of Turkey with the Republic of Georgia today.
0: Uh-huh. okay, yes, yes. I so it's
1: kind of right across from the Crimea, and then you go mm-hmm. further. east. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so uh, so so, can you kind of just just briefly how, uh, you know, he's born just at the at the you know kind of raised in the fifteenth century, right? Fifteenth yeah. century, right? And and then uh, fourteen
1: ninety four he- or ninety five.
0: Yeah. yeah. So so towards the end. And there's a lot of things going on. What you know, the Ottoman Empire had been around, I guess, for two hundred years at this point. Yeah. His grandfather, his father were pretty big figures. But what was that like, especially with the whole divide between Muslims and non-Muslims? Um, yeah. what was yeah. what was it like for him, I guess, coming up all the way to him being um uh, uh placed in uh uh Kaffa is the is the region, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. So <laughs> When Suleiman is born, uh, his father is district governor in Trabzon. Uh, d- the Ottomans d- divided their realm into these district governorships and, uh, you know, provincial governorships, a provincial governorate being, you know, having a bunch of these district governorships under it. And Suleiman's father was... Uh, he was the son of the ruling sultan. And again, this was Ottoman practice to send the princes out uh, around puberty mm-hmm. to serve as district governors in different parts of the empire. This served a couple of purposes. This in a place like Trabzon, which had been in Ottoman hands slightly more than 30 years by the time Suleiman born. And by the time his father was appointed there, you know, Trabzon had been Ottoman for roughly 20 years or so. So one way was to kind of, you know, help incorporate these newly conquered places in the Ottoman Empire, you know, by having a prince serve there. Mm -hmm. Another use of that was to give the prince the opportunity to receive a kind of hands-on education, you know, Mm -hmm. by becoming an administrator very early on, finding out, you know, the intricacies of Ottoman government you know, coming of age, you know, developing political skills, military skills, all that sort of stuff. So Suleiman's father was district governor. So in that regard, obviously, you know, he had an elite childhood. But the demographic composition of the town and its placement, I mean, that's interesting. Uh, Trabzon was a somewhat isolated part of the Ottoman lands uh, in the late 15th century. Uh, Number one, it basically bordered, Uh, these, uh, you know, different small principalities or local entities in the Caucasus uh, further east. It's, it's, I mean, the, the city of Trabzon also is situated on the other side of the Pontic Mountains on a fairly narrow strip between the sea and the Pontic Mountains. Even though it was a commercial center, it also, you know, it had a challenging ecological environment. You know, uh there were periods of famine, there were, you know, uh contagious diseases and this and that. So uh he basically lived in a small town uh as a member of the elite and yet, you know, uh in an in an environment that had to be you know constantly uh and carefully managed. As for the non-Muslims, so Trabzon, uh, when it was uh conquered by the Ottomans was the center of this Byzantine offshoot. And Trabzon was one of the last remaining, you know, Byzantine or Greek Orthodox strongholds uh, in Anatolia and the Balkans. Uh, So the population was made up of Orthodox Christians almost exclusively. There were also some Catholics living in there, but, you know, there were no Muslims before the Ottoman takeover. Mm -hmm. So the Ottoman takeover led to the, uh, you know, to the transfer of a number of Muslims, some of them settlers, some of them people like preachers, uh, you know, uh, religious figures, uh, others, you know, Ottoman officials, soldiers, and military people. But regardless, uh, as Suleiman grew up in Trabzon, the overwhelming majority of the population was made up of Uh, non-Muslims. Greek Orthodox Christians, Armenian Christians, and smaller communities of Venetians. Now, this was not a huge surprise, demographically speaking, you know, alongside, you know, uh, the Eastern Mediterranean or the Black Sea coast. uh, You know, these are the kinds of, you know, communities that you would encounter anywhere. But uh, in Suleiman's case, nevertheless, this means that he did grow up in a cosmopolitan environment. He lived with his family in the inner fortress of Trabzon. Uh, And he lived in an environment that was basically visually dominated by the remnants of this old uh, Byzantine empire, you know, stone carvings, inscriptions, old buildings, and all that sort of stuff. So while we cannot necessarily, you know, argue that, you know, he would have developed, let's say, a tolerant view of other cultures or anything we we also have to emphasize that he did grow up in a multi ethnic multi religious multi linguistic environment and this was basically uh his view of the world mm. again talking about the contrast between empire and nation state between a sort of imperial pragmatism versus a nation state style you know single nation, single people kind of approach. Uh, Suleiman basically grew up, grew up in a very cosmopolitan uh, environment mm-hmm. uh, in Trabzon.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that that's important to note, I guess, in his development. And, you know, of course, you don't want to kind of look at things kind of uh, retroactively. But, you know, I wonder how much of that impact has on all the other things he did as, as he reigned. So he becomes uh, the district governor of, of Kafa. And then there's the, kind of unpredictable succession that happens between him and his dad. They reign together, right? His his dad becomes the Sultan and then he's reigning as district governor. So just talk about that and then how he became the Sultan yeah. and how that Let happened.
1: Let me correct you a little bit, uh Suleiman's father fights against Suleiman's grandfather. Ah, okay. So <laughs> what happens is uh Suleiman's father is but he he has uh, a number of brothers uh in the year 1509 1510 when these succession struggles are starting uh Suleiman's father has uh four surviving brothers mm-hmm. uh and then thinking about yeah four uh and so all of these uh, brothers, uh, the sons of a reigning sultan, have the right to succeed to the Ottoman throne. Mm. But only one person can succeed to the Ottoman throne as a result of their, you know, succession has to take the form of a war among the princes. And the losing princes, as well as their sons and their grandsons, will be exterminated. Mm. Quite Darwinian. Uh but I mean this was one one of the ways in which uh the Ottomans were able to hold on to the to the lands under their control by introducing this principle that even though according to the old you know nomadic Turkic Mongolian tradition of giving each prince an equal right on ruling the domain, only one person at the end of the day could rule the domain and to, to, the, to the disadvantage of everyone else. Yeah. So Suleyman's father realizes that, you know, he's in an isolated period, as the, sorry, area, as the district governor of a small town. Some of his brothers have more revenue. They are located in more central places in the Ottoman lands. And also at least one of them uh, is favored by the sultan and the members of the ruling class as the sort of next uh, sultan, which means a death sentence for Suleiman and Suleiman's father so mm. Suleiman's father basically rebels against this eventuality while the ruling sultan is alive. Usually this battle among the princes starts as the sultan dies, but Suleiman's father basically you know takes the initiative mm. he rebels. He fights against his own father. He loses a battle, but he escapes. And then, you know, through a series of fairly complicated events and fairly unpredictable events, he ends up as sultan in 1512. Uh, And then shortly after becoming sultan, he has Suleiman's father, Selim, has his own father, Bayezid, uh, poisoned. So, and then he uh, organizes a major campaign against his surviving brothers. By that time, he has two surviving brothers. Uh, and then he also exterminates them, some members of their family. So by early 1513, uh, Suleiman and Selim basically remain as the only, you know, two uh, male members of the uh, Ottoman dynasty. And, you know, Suleyman uh, basically becomes the heir apparent uh, to the throne. Uh, He serves as governor in Kaffa while his father wages the succession struggle because it's Ottoman practice. And his father also sends him to Kaffa because he uses Kaffa as a a center of operations. But after coming to the throne, uh, his father relocates Suleiman to Western Anatolia to another district governorship in a much less isolated, much more central area with more resources as well. So 1512. So roughly 1509, 1510 to 1512, uh, 1513, Suleiman's father wages this sort of succession struggle. He's successful, and then he has Suleiman relocated uh, to a better position. And then uh, from 1512, 13 to 1520, Suleiman basically trains as a sort of mature prince. He is also, you know, in his late teens, early 20s during this period. You know, he establishes a large household for himself. He starts having children. Uh, he basically, he has his own, you know, f- uh, form of government uh, in this Western Anatolia. I mean, fairly small and regional, but still, he basically establishes a microcosm of the sultan's household in in, in Constantinople, and he waits for his turn, basically. And then in 1520, that turn comes.
0: Yeah, so so how where does, where does he... Where does he get in 1520 where he's able to, to, uh, to become the, the, the sultan? And how much – you can talk about that, but I guess how much do you think uh, a lot of this preparation work really helped him in the early part of his reign, especially when he starts to deal yeah. with Syria yeah. and Hungary? I,
1: exactly. <laughs> so he receives news in September 1520 that you know his father died. A messenger is sent to him in Western Anatolia, and he rushes onto Constantinople. And you know, uh, he reaches Constantinople in three days. Yeah, and then you know, uh, he's he becomes Sultan the next day. There's a major submission ceremony. You know, members of the Ottoman elite come and you know, they kiss his hand or they kiss the hem of his robe. Uh, so he becomes Sultan uh, very quickly. In the next couple of years, as you said, on the one hand, I mean, he's obviously helped mm-hmm. by this background knowledge that he has in Ottoman administrative and political matters. He's not a child. Yeah. Uh he is he is 24 or 25 years old when he comes to the throne. You know, uh a fairly mature age, uh, in the standards of the period. Uh But at the same time, he has a problem. I mean, even though he has a thorough training in Ottoman administrative life, uh, he is seen as a prince without much experience in terms of warfare. Since warfare, waging war, is one of the major preoccupations and activities of the ruler of the time, Suleiman is basically seen as somewhat inexperienced because he never leads any armies or he, do, he doesn't figure in any military ventures before coming to the throne. So his image problem also extend to this. Uh, his father is this sort of like very sort of overwhelming, larger than life, overbearing, and at times, you know, uh, violent in terms of having a violent t- temper. His father is this really, you know, uh, sort of as I was saying, I mean kind of overwhelming uh figure. And he also defeats not one but two major enemies of the Ottomans. He doubles the territory of the Ottoman Empire uh in the scope of you know uh you know from 15 uh 13 to you know 1517 basically yeah within within the scope of uh three and a half four years uh he leads armies Against you know these uh, powerful rivals, and he basically you know extends the scope of the empire. So Suleiman basically feels he's a bit you know uh, pressured by the legacy of the father, by the perception of him as inexperienced. So he starts doing a couple of things. He starts creating an image of himself as a just ruler. You see it in the first documents that are prepared under his reign. These letters of accession that are sent to different rulers. Uh, he also obviously benefits uh, from the members of the Ottoman administration that are left behind by his father. So he is savvy enough to develop an image for himself while benefiting from the expertise of these, you know, this old group of officials. So, thanks to their support, thanks to the support of people that Suleiman inherits from his father, he is able to manage this major rebellion in Syria. He's also able to organize two major campaigns. Uh, He captures Belgrade uh, from the Hungarians, and he also captures Rhodes from the Knights Hospitaller. And then after gathering a sort of critical amount of power, he starts reshaping the Ottoman, the upper levels of the Ottoman administration. He has a number of these officials he inherited from his father dismissed, and he starts replacing them uh, with his own people. And the most prominent among them is, uh, you know, the chief of the Privy Chamber, a man called Ibrahim, whom Suleyman promotes in unprecedented fashion from palace and domestic service to the Grand Viserate, which is the largest sort of executive office in the Ottoman Empire. So by 1524... Uh, by the early months of uh, 1524, uh, the sort of first stage of Suleiman's rule is done. He is able to build an image as a just sultan as well as a skilled conqueror after his initial uh, military campaigns. And then he's also able to successfully push aside the officials he inherited from his father and kind of replaces them with his own men. So that's kind of how he manages the first couple of years, the first several years on the throne.
0: Yeah, yeah. It was interesting about the Hungarian and Syrian conflicts. I guess want to ask about this Grand Vizier, as as yeah, as, as, yeah. as, and how they they make the law code and the preamble and this big document and wanting this global mission of universal rule under yeah. the Ottoman Empire. Talk about their dynamic and and what yeah. they were up to. It's very interesting. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. It, yes. And this is this is the perfect kind of moment to to address that. So. <laughs> Suleiman, uh, as, as we just talked about, kind of consolidates his rule uh, during the first several years of uh, his reign. He he controls uh, the Ottoman military political elite, and then he promotes he promotes a close friend and servant to the Grand Vizierate. And after that, he basically starts kind of formulating and you know publicizing his own vision. Uh, the the new Grand Vizier, uh, we know that, you know, he was very close to Suleiman during his years as district governor in Western Anatolia, as well as, you know, uh, the first years of Suleiman on the throne. So the Sultan and the Grand Vizier, and, you know, they are not the only ones doing, coming up with with, with this kind of vision at this uh, particular point in history. You know, the Habsburgs, uh, you know, Charles V, uh, Suleiman's contemporary, has similar views. All of those messianic and apocalyptic prophecies are running roughshod across Europe and the Middle East. I would say across Eurasia. So it's an environment in which these kinds of ideas of universal rule, universal justice, universal peace are fairly popular. Suleiman's ambition, and I guess you know, his also his success is to inscribe himself in these kinds of narratives and come up with a coherent narrative whereby, you know, as a as a just ruler, as a militarily successful ruler, as a wealthy ruler, with the help of this perfect servant, the Grand Vizier, he claims that, you know, he will fight uh, to usher in a sort of new age in which East and West and Islam and Christianity will be gathered under the same mantle, and that, you know, a new age of, you know, peace and harmony will be ushered in. Again, I mean, this is not something that's very strange. Uh, Similar utopias, you know, exist throughout human history, I would say, but particularly starting with the late medieval period. So another interesting thing about Suleiman is the fact that he places himself uh, in these historical narratives. And there are indications that he did believe in them, and his following campaigns in Europe mm-hmm. uh against the Habsburgs uh for instance, are clearly i mean you know a military campaign is meant to keep the military class together, gather uh, you know resources, all of that. I'm not disregarding that, but uh when you look at Suleiman's following campaigns uh in central Europe next to their military objectives they almost always have this sort of you know overarching uh, sort of ideological vision mm. uh so he tries to implement that and as a result of as a result he basically enters into this intense uh competition with the habsburgs
0: yeah so i want to ask about that so obviously there's he, he he's against the hungarians again in 26 and then the habsburgs in 32 was this because these were kind of the the big uh, or the other uh, kind of entities or empires in the region and, and and knocking them out or or subsuming them would kind of solidify that? And almost that he had to do that before he could move east and, and start doing campaigns uh, uh, in a different part of the world. Did he have to kind of just get what was around him first or how did this – what was the motivation I guess for this?
1: So one motivation for Suleiman's campaigns in Europe was and you find it in the uh sources of the time uh because Suleiman's father had fought against other muslim uh sultanates and other muslim powers it becomes a matter of again image building for Suleiman to fight against the so-called enemies of islam or the infidels and that sort of thing uh beyond the beyond that sort of propagandistic function the hungarians and the ottomans i mean they are major rivals uh already you know starting in the first decades of the 15th century and before the ottomans take over uh before the ottomans defeat the hungarians and before hungary becomes partitioned uh between the ottomans and the habsburgs uh hungary is the major regional power in kind of Iran's central and eastern Europe. So and since these uh these kinds of kingdoms of or empires basically uh have this almost inbuilt you know necessity for warfare, they expand through warfare, uh they control trade routes through warfare, all that sort of stuff. So I mean the Ottoman-Hungarian rivalry uh is in a way inescapable. And as you said, I mean, like you, you know, we have these uh expanding kingdoms and empires. And their clash cannot be prevented in the sense that, I mean, the sort of more modern, I mean, notions of peace, ceasefire, all of those kinds of things uh, obviously exist in the 16th century. But at the same time, I mean, and again, as a historian, we talk, we oftentimes talk about the difference of the past uh, compared with, uh, you know, what we see today. violence. Military violence, warfare is such an inescapable and constant aspect of the everyday lives of these upper classes that it is almost inconceivable that the Ottomans and the, the Hungarians would not clash against one another or the, the Habsburgs and the Ottomans mm. later on. I mean, this is this is how you compete for prestige, for resources. You know, mm. you go to the battlefield.
0: Mm. Yeah. It's interesting how that was such a a common part of life, uh, and, it, yeah. and it, it really carried on through for for many, many, many centuries. I, I want to ask about some of these executions. So you you kind of teed it up for us, I guess, with his dad and tag yeah. killing yeah. killed a lot of his his family to, to get there. But yeah, he ends up executing this this grand vizier, the Ibrahim, the and yeah. then he also executes his eldest son i mean what what was he up to with with, with doing these uh, executions with people close to him
1: yeah. and these are these were very difficult uh mm-hmm. decisions for him too. it's it's very obvious that these came at a huge uh personal cost to him as well as you know uh, a huge uh cost to his reputation in the case of the grand vizier ibrahim uh he's executed in 1536 and he's Basically, spending time together with the Sultan in the palace during the night. And he's the only person who is allowed to sleep, you know, in the same quarters as, as Suleiman. And he's he's there. I, I don't think he suspected what was coming to him. And you know, he's basically executed uh at night, and then his corpse is disposed of. Why why would Suleiman have, you know, one of his closest friends, if not his closest friend, executed. I mean, there is a lot of confusion in the sources of the time. I mean, so much so that we can only speculate. But there are a couple of things. I mean, first of all, uh, as you know from the book, despite all his wealth and power, Ibrahim remained a slave of Suleiman to the end of his life as Mm as someone who was uh, taken in by slave merchants as a Christian and someone who was later converted to Islam and who entered Ottoman service. Uh, basically, in Ottoman practice, uh, while they shouldn't, strictly according to the Sharia, uh, people from that background were made to keep their their slave status. Hmm. So despite everything that he did, Ibrahim basically was a slave of the Sultan. Uh, Another potential reason, so we talked about the ambitious vision that Ibrahim and Suleiman came up with Mm -hmm. in 1524, 1525, and they fought major campaigns to implement it. They fought against the Hungarians together, and then the Habsburgs, and then in the east against the Safavids of Iran. Mm -hmm. And in a way, none of these campaigns resulted in the sort of overwhelming victory that they were hoping for. Mm -hmm. And I suspect that Ibrahim became the face of that failure, the Mm -hmm. face, the the, the representative of that vision that the two men had formulated. Mm -hmm. Yet another reason, Ibrahim, I mean, by all accounts, again, he was a very witty, very intelligent uh, person, a great conversationalist. And Suleiman was always attracted Towards people like that. I mean, that's the other thing about him that comes across centuries: that he liked to to be in the presence of interesting people, well educated people, and Ibrahim basically, you know, fit uh, the bill. But he 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 was also, you know, again very self conscious uh, about his status, a big self promoter, and someone who was into you know ostentatious behavior. Conspicuous consumption. He would show up in public wearing very expensive jewelry, you know, extremely uh, you know, uh, expensive clothes. Uh so the ostentatious behavior again may have contributed to sort of his declining, not declining reputation, but to a decline in Suleiman's uh sympathy. Ibrahim basically becomes almost a competing figure next to the sultan through this kind of behavior. And again, since there can only be one sultan, he, he pays the ultimate price. Hmm. Suleiman's son Mustafa, kind of a similar story, even though there are significant differences. Uh, so the first son Suleiman has executed uh, in uh, 1553 is his eldest survivor, surviving son at that time. Uh, now Suleiman has other surviving children at that time. He has uh, three sons and a daughter surviving in 1553, uh, in addition to Mustafa. But Mustafa is from a different mother. The four, the, the other four children the, 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 uh, are from Suleiman's long, lifelong relationship with Hürrem. And Mustafa is the son of a concubine from the time, from before the time Suleiman meets Huram, and they they become an item, basically, which is another interesting thing to do. Again, I mean, Ottoman sultans would have intercourse with concubines and they would have multiple children from multiple, multiple women. Uh, But, you know, Suleiman kind of defies that practice uh, after he meets uh, Huram. So Mustafa is the eldest son. 1553, Suleiman is around, Suleiman is is in his late 50s. He is sick with gout. Uh, You know, he is basically seen as kind of getting close to stepping down. Mm. So his eldest son, Mustafa, is increasingly seen as the most viable heir to the throne by a number of different people in Ottoman society. We also have indications that Mustafa also sees himself as the best candidate to the throne. We have a letter that he writes to another Ottoman governor in which, you know, he talks about himself in such a way that, you know, you clearly see this is a guy who is getting ready, you know, uh, to, to step up, basically, you know, to, uh, to come to the throne. So Mustafa poses an existential threat and a sort of competition to, to both Suleiman and his other surviving children. Uh, so Suleiman's grand vizier at the time, who is also his son-in-law, uh, basically cooks up an accusation of treason. Uh, and Prince Mustafa is executed on the suspicion of rebellion against his father. Uh, but I mean, it's so it's similar to Ibrahim's execution in the sense that, you know, if you try to become an alternative source of power in that kind of society, you know, it's a very dangerous act in itself. But also uh, Mustafa basically, you know, kind of becomes the first victim of this uh, strange uh, succession practice of the Ottomans, you know, whereby princes fight it out among themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, And another one of Suleiman's sons basically also becomes victim to that because in 1558, he rebels uh, because he wants to come to the throne. And then he has to escape into Iran, where he spends a number of years, and then he's executed in Iran mm-hmm. uh in 1562. So Suleiman has two of his sons executed uh in the you know, in the last uh decade and a half of his life.
0: Mm-hmm. This is quite a quite quite the story. I mean, especially yeah. on the beginning and at the end. Very Shakespearean. Yes, it does. It's Very, very, very Shakespearean. <laughs> Greek tragedy Shakespearean, yeah. Yeah. Everything. I guess, the, what is the, you know, as as he gets, you know, he he eventually, you know, dies and there's a successor and and the Ottoman Empire obviously continues, as we said in the beginning. I guess that the last big question I have here is, is what, you know, writing this book and and obviously, you know, doing this research and stuff, it's just, what is the legacy of, of Suleiman, and how do we accurately understand him as a person and as a as a as a sultan.
1: Yeah. That's a great way to finish. Uh I'm gonna answer your second question first. I think as in the case of any other person or any historical figure, we have to underst we can understand him best if we focus on his achievements as well as failures. On his positive aspects as well as on his weaknesses and on his on his failings. I, so we have to kind of adopt a holistic view about him and also to look at his life, you know, from beginning to end, rather than only the high points of that. This is particularly important because Suleiman himself was very conscious about his own legacy so he left behind a number of markers to make sure that you know his life would be remembered the way he wanted he had this uh illustrated versified history of his uh, reign written uh in the 1540s and 1550s he left behind a lot of charitable works and this and that. And when you look at the when you look at the history, uh that versified illustrated history called the Book of Suleiman, uh you clearly see how he wanted to be remembered. You know, like it's an accomplished statesman, a hunter. Uh you know, uh he he it, the book talks about his military accomplishments. By have the entire world, you know, bowed in front of Suleiman's glory and all of those kinds of things. And when you look at his architectural legacy, you see an extremely thoughtful, charitable person catering to all the needs of the community, building soup kitchens, bathhouses, hospitals, and all of that sort of stuff. So the, the the sort of official narrative is very strong, and that's that's a major caution for us to kind of uh you know uh, we should be defying those kinds of official narratives and uh as i was saying i mean try to focus on the failures as well as as well as the achievements uh themselves beyond that though i mean why suleyman is important uh is that what you are asking or
0: yeah why is important for the ottoman empire and and what is his kind of enduring why legacy
1: yeah why should we care about it mm-hmm. I think Suleiman, together with similar figures from the time. I mean Charles V. I always think about the two, uh, you know, uh, pretty much at the same time, or uh, people like Francis I. Uh, in France. So these are people I think who started building the first kind of modern bureaucratic structures and economic relations i mean they they ruled at a time of major transformations in world history i would look at the 16th century as really sort of the turning point uh between Middle, the Middle Ages and the modern period, I mean, it is a major time of transition. Uh, figures like Suleiman, as well as Charles V, they were able to navigate the tremendous challenges of the time. You know, uh, they were open to experiment with new ideas about religious identity, about political identity. Uh, They introduced new bureaucratic structures, new governmental institutions that made it easier for these governments uh, to collect taxes, to purchase weapons. They also contributed to the emergence of a kind of diplomatic relationship that did not necessarily exist before, like a kind of diplomacy as obviously a political conversation, but also as a sort of intercultural dialogue. Uh, again, goes you know to back to the 16th century in my mind. So this was an important time in world history, and some of these figures basically, in a way, rose to the challenge and tried to you know uh, survive, but also transform themselves, transform their surroundings, establish things. So these are institution builders in that regard. So. I think this is the biggest legacy of figures like uh again Suleiman Henry VIII and Charles V or Shah Thomas in Iran uh figures like Babur and Akbar in Mughal India uh they, they lived in a, in a, in a moment of transitions and they they very much contributed uh to to the transformation of Older structures and kind of they, they, they really helped usher in this 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 new age, which, in my mind, as I was saying, is the beginning of uh, modernity, as we know of it today. Uh, you could say that today we are getting increasingly away from the kind of world that you know people like you know Suleiman and Charles V ushered in, but digitization. With a new kind of globalization, with a new form of identity politics, for instance, we may be kind of getting away from that and entering a new kind of historical period. Uh, but still, I mean, these figures do remain relevant as you know some of the founding fathers of the past 500 years of human history.
0: Yeah, I like how you 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 put it in context, which you which you also do in the book, which is which is great. The book is called "The Life and Times of Sultan Soliman, Peerless Among Princes." Uh, where can people find this and where can, uh, people find yourself?
1: Uh, they can find the book on amazon.com. It's published by Oxford university press. Uh, readers should feel free to send me an email. Uh, if they Google my name, uh, and Indiana, uh, I will come up. I am the only person with a name like mine in the entire state of Indiana. (laughs) They can get my email from the website that's going to pop up and send me their
0: questions. (laughs) <laughs> yeah no, that's great uh Kai, it's, it's, it's such a uh, a fun conversation i mean Likewise. it's so 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 much fun to to learn about important figures and i like how you 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 definitely make it contextual and and super relevant and the book is very readable i mean again someone that's uh not not as well um Uh, informed about these things, I I was able to read it very easily and it was great. So I I really appreciate your time.
1: That was my intention. I mean, I tried to provide, you know, uh, you cannot assume that, you know, everybody would know about Ottoman history. So I am very glad to hear that you think I did a good job in that regard because that was exactly... My intention. So I really appreciate your feedback and these wonderful questions that you came up with, which which made this a very pleasant conversation for me.
0: Of course, well, you know, I I, I have you, know, you to thank for for explaining it so well. So so big thanks.
1: Thank you so much.